0: If I ever had a threat of violence or death or whatever mm-hmm. I would squeal to the cops so fast Yeah <laughs> I know This is Van Collar ripping West Coast Virgo. My name is Moamir, and today on This Is Van Colour, I am joined by one of my favorite Vancouver-based journalists. A quiet fan of the podcast since I started, but she's here for the first time. It's been a long time coming. She covers housing, economics, business, and politics. Her work has appeared in The Star Vancouver, The Toronto Star, Vancouver Sun, Business in Vancouver, The Vancouver Courier, and CTV News Vancouver. She doesn't shy away from the polar bear swim. And apparently my dad, that's right, Mo Senior, is now her Facebook friend. He actually told me that I should get her on the program. She is the Thais downtown East Side reporter. She is Jen St. Dennis. Jen, how are you?
1: Hello, Mo. I'm good. And yes, I did accept your dad's request <laughs> to friend me. Did you figure it was him, or did yeah, you just think- yeah, because it says Mo Senior, <laughs> and
0: I know you're Mo Junior, so I think it just says Muhammad Amir, but I'm sure you could have figured it out. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, I figured it out. I've recently just let it go on Facebook. I used to keep it all personal, and now I'm just like, friending everybody, and because it's part of my working the downtown east side beat, I'm. That's how I'm kind of managing that so it's just all public now
0: <laughs> yeah it was so weird he was like oh yeah I made friends with this Jen St. Dennis she has amazing work you should get her on the podcast I'm like I literally just booked her like we didn't I'd already done it before he he came to me so it was just a weird coincidence I didn't know that he was reading the Taii, but apparently he is
1: have you ever interviewed your dad on the podcast
0: <laughs> I would listen to that oh we would get cancelled so fast once he uh, unleashes his opinions <laughs> The world wants to know what most Senior thinks. He does this amazing thing on Facebook. He's really mixing it up in the Facebook comments on news articles these days. And he does this amazing thing where he ends each opinion with, this is my view. Like he just is
1: I very like it. clear. He's already got a tagline. <laughs>
0: this is most seniors view it's a most senior original take he wants to be very clear so yeah he's mixing it up but it's cool that he i didn't realize that he was aware of the taii or didn't seem like his style but he's he's reading it
1: i think more people are reading the taii than ever and it's it's really exciting to be there at this point it's it's really we're really doing amazing work and Mm. i love it there it's been great
0: awesome what a fucking week to kick off (laughs) 2021
1: hey um yeah i can't even remember what Even happened like the other day. I was yesterday, which was Friday. I said to my, I turned to my husband and I said, "What day did the Capitol riot happen? Was it Thursday or like I literally couldn't remember?" And um, it's been crazy in local politics too. Like there's just been so much going on.
0: Yeah, I mean we're a week out from New Year's, and that just feels like forever ago
2: <laughs> so long ago
1: so so that that feeling that we had in 2020 that it was like the longest year is just it hasn't stopped oh, obviously just I mean it was yeah. just, I guess that was a, I mean it was a nice to say like goodbye 2020 but that was just a that was just something that we did to make ourselves feel good I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> so
0: there is this dialogue that we're seeing in this first week of 2021 like oh my God, what a shame, what an embarrassment. The world is bananas. And, you know, we have seen history unfold before our eyes. It is concerning. There's an element of it that is obviously sensational. And it is an embarrassment, what's happened, at least in the United States. But when people say that, there's this part of me that goes, hey, you know what else is really shocking? Like, stuff that's happening in our backyard. And This idea that we're this world class city and we have all these challenges and a lot of things that we're indifferent to and we just kind of look past, like that's embarrassing to me in a lot of ways. And I'm guilty of it. I'm not, you know, on my moral high horse here, but I just feel like it's fine to be outraged about what's happening in different countries, but there's so many things here that warrant outrage and concern and just even just introspection of, is this who we are as a society or as a community? And so that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that idea, like it, it's been common for me in my work to like one day be touring a $6 million penthouse. Mm-hmm. And then like maybe you know, a week later, I'll be going to a tent city with homeless people living in tents in the mud. Mm-hmm. Like that's been a common element of my work for like you know, four or five years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that.
0: And so I want to chat about the downtown east side, which I know sounds like this grandiose
1: project. <laughs> <'cause there's, laughs> a little bit, yeah. There's so much to unpack. Slightly ambitious that but we
2: what did I this. want to do
0: is I want to focus in on a few areas where you've been reporting recently and stuff that's in the news, especially in the Tai. I want to start with these two hotels, the Regent and Balmoral Hotels in the downtown East Side in the city of Vancouver. When they were first built. These were like luxury hotels, right? They were the jewels of the city?
1: Yeah, they were places where, yeah, lots of people would come and stay when they were in Vancouver. They were part of this, uh, you know, but a bunch of, of hotels that were built around this time, like mm-hmm. a century ago. Um, and back then, when you built a hotel, you know, you'd build, you'd build a room and it would have like a shared bathroom, um, you know, that... Uh, the, the, all the guests would would use the same bathroom, hmm. which was normal. And you know, I'm sure that we've on our travels, we probably stayed in places like that, hostels or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that was considered normal at the time. And yeah, the Belmore, especially, was was a fairly fancy hotel back in the day when it was first built.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, can you explain very briefly? I know we can probably spend the whole hour on this, but just briefly, the history of these two buildings from luxury hotels. To the point where this very notorious Vancouver dynasty, the Sahoda family, ends up owning these buildings?
1: Yeah. Well, so first of all, I guess the thing we have to kind of put in context is that there's a lot of these kind of buildings. They're called, now they're called single room occupancy hotels. Mm -hmm. So they, but they are that legacy. Most of them are about 100 years old. They were built in that older style of these hotels that were built to house, you know, like all, all sorts of people, workers, um, loggers, people who are working in BC's resource industries, back at the turn of the century, um, and they kind of have just stuck around. And now, you know, years, decades, and decades later, um, they're mostly concentrated in the downtown east side, and they offer the lowest cost housing to people so now they're um, some of them are publicly owned by um, the government or by nonprofit operators and operated by them Um, about half of them are still in private hands and Mm -hmm. they tend to be uh, where people who are making the least amount of money in the city live so people who are making uh, uh, social assistance on social assistance benefits or disability benefits um, and they Welfare kind of calculates that they should be people should be spending three hundred and seventy-five dollars on rent, and so if you can imagine like rent in Vancouver and how how expensive rent in Vancouver is, mm-hmm. so if you if you get social assistance or disability, um, it's sort of like the only place you can find. And the problem is that these buildings are aging; they're not really set up for modern living, and they're not mm-hmm. really set up for people who have a lot of, um, you know, who are who are often high needs have have a lot of um, people who may be using drugs regularly mm-hmm. um, people who may have been mental, mental health problems. And a lot of those people are living in those buildings. Or if you can imagine like in a very small room um, having to go out and share a bathroom with a bunch of other tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just not ideal. They've, and it's been hard to keep them properly maintained. And in some cases it's because, you know, the welfare rate doesn't, give you much money to maintain your buildings. In other cases, it's sort of apparent that some of the landlords have really done this as a strategy. And I would say that these two buildings, the region and the Balmoral, over the decades, there's been like so many infractions with the building code. Um, the city has fined the Sahotas, this family that owns mm-hmm. the region and the Balmoral and several other hotels. Uh, they find them so many times, taking them to court so many times that it sort of has become this pattern of where it's obvious that this particular landlord is just not, you know, has over decades has not kept their buildings up to, you know, safe human habitation standards.
0: Right. So one thing I want to quickly clarify, when we talk about the welfare rate, that is social assistance that the government of British Columbia gives to people on social assistance? Yeah, is that- so
1: they give them this rate. It, it varies depending on like whether you're single or in a um, relationship or have kids or whatever. But mm-hmm. they give you this... Um, this, the rate and then for a single person um out of that money it, they're supposed to they say that the, the shelter rate so the amount that you're sort of allocated for rent out of that is 375 dollars and one of the problems is that that hasn't re- really gone up that much for mm-hmm. decades right it's been sort of stuck at so that rate. are they
0: paying if you're staying at one of these sros are you paying three hundred seventy five dollars a month to stay there, or
1: does it vary? Or some, I mean, a dwindling number. You are, um, but the, one of the problems with with these buildings is that the they've actually been gentrified. Like people have been. Um, buying them up and doing very sort of surface renovations mm. uh, when tenants leave. And then the price goes up a lot. And so it's still the same thing. It's still a very tiny room. It may have been given a little bit of a lipstick renovation with the people sharing bathrooms, but it may be as much as, you know, between, I don't know, $800. i have heard as high as $1,200 really? a month. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And some of them.
0: When we talk about this shift from these SRO buildings, some of them were hotels, like you said, some of them housed workers. When was that shift from that era to social housing, public housing?
1: I don't exactly know like when that whole shift happened. I mean, I, people talk about in the 80s is sort of when the downtown east side started to kind of change and decline a, a little bit with um, – Especially with the introduction, I think, of crack cocaine and drug use becoming a lot more prevalent Mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. Um, I I, I think it was a process that happened over a number of years, so a number of decades, but definitely like through the 80s and 90s. I think we saw the area kind of, you know, if you think about it in that time too, the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there was also a lot of gentrification happening throughout the city mm-hmm. as well where other other like low cost accommodation whether it was rooming houses or, or older older apartment buildings were kind of being bought up and either renovated or or torn down so mm-hmm. there's been this kind of continual process we also had this Um, you know, 30 year era where we didn't really build any more social housing. We had like a social housing boom in the 70s and then we didn't build anything. So I think what you've seen over the decades is the downtown Eastside kind of being this smaller and smaller area of where we kind of put the poor people um and i'm saying I, I don't mean like literally although in some cases like i have heard of like people who when they were homeless in other areas of the city i have set, heard them say that they were picked up by the cops and put in the downtown really? side yes
2: wow um,
1: i reported on that recently it was a story about a man's christmas tree and what it meant to him so you can look that up on the thai um huh. jack gates's christmas tree story so um, quite
0: literally pushed. To literally like he said yeah. they
1: literally like kind of picked him up and drove him down to the downtown east side and that's and he's like and that's how I ended up in the Regent Hotel and I was just like Jack that's heartbreaking um so yeah so when you think about just how did the downtown east side get to be where it is um I think we have to think about what's happening in the rest of the city what's (laughs) you know all these different factors um it's also important to realize that um a huge number of people who live in the downtown east side are indigenous Mm. and a lot of those people have had um Effects from those colonial, those horrible colonial practices like residential school, the mm-hmm. 60s scoop, um, people dealing, and a lot of those people are dealing with deep, deep trauma. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: so we have to also recognize that that is a huge part of why um, the downtown side is the way it is, why it has the problems it does, why it has kind of um, all these things kind of coming and mixing and colliding in here. So there's it's complicated and it's it's sort of hard to explain in like just a few minutes but yeah no, there's all there's all these things going on there
0: and I guess I want to focus back on these hotels and the Sahoda family they own several properties the Sohota's
1: yeah they own lots of properties they have a huge property portfolio
0: yeah at what point did they start owning these buildings in the downtown east side, particularly the Regent and the
2: Balmoral?
1: I can't answer that question for sure. I know that the I know that the Balmoral, the last property title was registered in for them for the Sahotas, The mm-hmm. last property title was registered in 1991, but I don't know if they owned it before and there was some sort of change. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't have that answer. I know that they've owned them since the early 90s.
0: And this family, (laughs) they're a weird bunch, right? Yeah. Like, they're they're, they're (laughs) multi-millionaires, but they dress down, and I think Mm -hmm. that's actually being nice in terms of how they dress, considering the wealth that they have. One of them was caught eating at the Carnegie Cafeteria, which is meant to provide low-cost food for low-income people, which is, you know, for someone of that net value or net worth is very strange for him to be eating there. I heard a Canada Land podcast that you were on that, They're hoarders, even in their mansion, you know, it's filthy or or whatever. They're a strange family, right?
1: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time personally, like, just trying to understand their motivation. Um, It's, you know, you always have this experience when you're covering the region and the Balmoral. They're they're very, very elderly at this point, although one of them- And we're talking about three of them in There's three of them, although, so there's, I think, two brothers and a sister, uh, but and they're in their 80s and 90s, but the sister died recently. Okay. And there is a daughter as well. Um, but I don't really know much about her so but she is involved in the business as well um, so yeah they're just it is curious it is you know you kind of wonder because they're always in the in the media the, there's been tons of reporters who have looked into them and done investigative stories like mm-hmm. I'm not the only person to kind of get obsessed with these buildings and these sure. people who own them um, but yeah and you'll, you'll have this experience always where you try to call their house to get comment and they do pick up and they kind of just always say no and it's it's just very strange. Like, I always wondered why they hung on to the buildings, because they were always in the press in this negative way. Mm-hmm. But um, but they have, and they have really wanted to hang on to them for a long time, <laughs> until <laughs> the point that we got to, which we can talk about if you Well, and that's just it.
0: I mean, they got a big payout, and you're the one that broke the story about the sale of the Regent and the Balmoral from the Sohota family to the city of Vancouver. What was the state of these buildings at the time of the city's purchase? Because… I believe the Balmoral was condemned in 2017, 2017 and the Regent was condemned in 2018. Yeah. So what is the state of these buildings? And, and can you describe this this sale to me?
1: Yeah. So the two buildings are, they, they're like right across from each other, um, right in the heart of the downtown East side on East Hastings, right at Hastings and Maine. Um, they're quite, they're both quite large buildings. The Balmoral is really large. Um, it has over, I think it has 160 rooms. Um, so the, in there had been a a bunch of um, like tenant advocates and tenants themselves had been pushing for better conditions for a while before this happened they had tried to start a class action lawsuit just Mm -hmm. like saying that the city was the city had not been enforcing its own standards of maintenance bylaws which means that it can if there's a problem they can go in do the repairs and then build a landlord back Mm -hmm. and so the tenants were saying the city has never used this tool we've been going without heat and hot water these horrific um, you know rodent and pest infestations Mm -hmm. like just a laundry list of horrible problems including fire safety concerns um for years and years and so oh but what happened was that the city kind of after that the city did go in and inspect the buildings and we're like oh the Balmoral especially the Balmoral is about to fall down so um also structurally structurally there's there's a rotten beam in the basement and then they what they said was that the the floors underneath the bathtubs were so rotten that if they had filled up the bathtubs, they were worried that the bathtubs would crash through the floor.
2: Wow.
1: Um, This raises all kinds of questions for me about why it took so long for these problems to come to light because that doesn't and i talked to tenants who were like oh yeah there's mushrooms growing from my walls and there were really horrible problems with mold in the balmoral right um so after that so that was in 2017 in june 2017 and they um closed the balmoral they they worked really hard with bc housing to to rehouse everybody that is one Mm -hmm. of the good parts of the story is that they were able to rehouse everybody uh they shut it down a year later kind of the same process with the region kind of the same problems i think there was the bath the bathroom floors had the same issues with rot um and so they did kind of did the same process a year later almost to the to the day um and then they started this expropriation process and the city had never tried to use its expropriation powers this way before (laughs) to deal with what they called blight (laughs) which sounds like a really old-fashioned term from like clearing out a slum or something but um
0: yeah, so the city started but I just want to be clear, these two buildings are empty.
1: They're empty and right they now. Been
0: for a couple yeah, of years. they've been empty for a
1: couple of years. And yeah. by
0: condemned it means they have to be torn down.
1: No, I know. This so techni- I think technically when you say condemned it means they have to be torn down. So, I guess we should say um they're they've been declared not fit to occupy. Um okay so they don't I have don't to know be what, torn
0: down but there has to be serious structural work done then or
1: Yeah, they're not yeah, exactly. They would have to have serious serious renovations. And what I hear is that the regent might be salvageable with a, with a renovation, but the bulboral probably needs to be torn down.
0: And again, just so I'm clear on this, so everyone that was living in these buildings prior to them being condemned. We are talking about people who were getting social assistance, were getting this welfare rate and they were paying a monthly fee of a yeah, monthly yeah. rental. they fee.
1: they were renters there. Yeah.
0: yeah. So let's talk about the city buying this <laughs> because I remember a story that the city was going to expropriate both buildings for a dollar a piece and everyone was super excited mm. because the city was going to take charge and then you break the story that they end up paying 11.5 million for both of them mm. when both properties were collectively assessed at 6.7 million. So, what happened to the one dollar expropriation? Especially considering the backstory they just told us, and yeah. and they could have gone in there.
1: So, the reason the city uh, valued them at a dollar is because they did this independent assessment where they kind of showed that it would take the cost to, to either demolish or redevelop the buildings, mm. or, or do a renovation, would be so high that that's why they value. They would all, all actually be negative value. So that's why they valued them at a dollar, right? Um. But then when you look at what happened with the buildings before and after the expropriation with their value, um, the buildings were worth about, I don't know, $11 million each, give or take, Mm -hmm. before the expropriation attempt started. And right afterwards, so after that, the next year, when you looked at their valuation, they had just plunged in value Mm -hmm. to both around $3 million. And they kind of fluctuated in the years after that. So when you're talking about the city would still have to pay fair market value even if they're expropriating so then they were just i think they were what my guess is that they were just kind of at at that point they were kind of in this negotiation period where they were trying to figure out what how to get these buildings and kind of going through this negotiation um and one thing we should note is that the globe and mail has reported like based on this memo that they got from the city um the city had uh, pegged the cost of expropriation at at least 7.5 million dollars um to go through the court or to give fair market value so um when we talk about what was it was it a fair value i mean i think there's it's good to question it it's good to know what it was that they paid the, the Zahodas tried to keep it secret that was one of the terms of the deal why would they try to keep it secret what do they care i don't I don't quite know, actually. <laughs> I, I can see why
0: the city might want to keep it secret. The but city And
1: the city did not want to keep it secret. Yeah. Like, city councilor, councilors have been pretty clear in the media that they would have rather it just be transparent because it's, sure. a, it's a taxpayer-funded purchase. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not quite clear on that. I think it probably has something to do with, um, you know, people who are in business trying to keep their business affairs under wraps be, for competitive reasons. Maybe mm. that would be the reason. Um, but... Whether or not it was fair, I don't, I don't really know. It, I, like the, the value had been fluctuating so wildly, like I say, and it even went down like most recently when I looked at it, it had gone down even further.
0: I guess my problem is not so much the valuation or paying fair market value. It's trying to understand why this idea of expropriating the buildings at a dollar was even floated in the first place. Like there must have been some basis where they said, okay, this is actually possible to just go in, expropriate it for these various reasons. So there must be some basis,
1: and then that basis fell through, right? I okay. Well, I think it might not be well understood that the expropriation process was, I don't think, ever about buying the buildings for one dollar. Okay. I think they would have always had to pay fair market value. So I think maybe so where did that come from? Well, the valuation was
0: okay. Negative pegged
1: at a dollar. I yeah. think. Well, maybe we needed to do a better job of explaining that in the media. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that maybe that's on us. <laughs> well, that's why I'm confused. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the thing like I I have no issue with the city paying fair market value those are obviously the, the rules and laws of expropriation I when this was floated at a dollar that's just where I get very confused so that was never really on the table is for my understanding
1: Uh yeah, I guess not. I mean, well, and the other thing we can think about too um is People in the community, in the Denton Eastside community, might be looking at this 11.5 million dollar figure, um, and kind of feeling like, well, look at this. Look at the way the Sahotas ran these for years. Mm-hmm. And but in the end, yes, they they have had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines in the past for building code violations. But in the end, what they got out of it was 11.5 million dollars. it doesn't
2: seem fair it doesn't
1: (laughs) you kind of have to think about like the condition that they put the buildings into there are people who really believe that they became very very ill from living in these buildings uh with conditions like copd from living in black mold for for years and years so um so i think that's probably the way or you know people have said that to me from who were who've lived in the downtown side for a long time they kind of look at it and go they shouldn't i had Jack Gates who's a, the Regent tenant um mm-hmm. said to me like well, I I don't even I didn't even want them to get a dollar.
2: <laughs> yeah. So
0: yeah. Well, I can understand that frustration and so I'm curious like beyond perhaps pursuing a civil matter in the courts, is there anything criminal that the Sahodas did here because on a moral basis it sounds awful. So is there anything criminal in terms of Building negligence or liability for exposing people to black mold, which I've heard is in, was in one of the hotels. Like,
1: well, when the tena- there no
0: laws, criminal yeah. laws against Well, this? when
1: the tenants tried to use the class action lawsuit. um, they worked they lost that case so, and they were told that they would have to use the residential tenancy branch process hmm. which is where you know res, where if you're being evicted or if you're having a problem with yeah. your landlord you can go and landlords can use it too you can go and get an arbitrator to say like does this violate rent laws and what has what has to happen um so they were Especially told you know so the
0: courts wouldn't touch it
1: So, the courts were saying, like, this isn't our jurisdiction. It was the residential tenancy branch. So, one of the things I've heard from the lawyer who handled that case was that he'd like to see the province allow... Class action lawsuits for these kind of situations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had David Eby, who's the uh, current Attorney General, but who before he became a politician, um, he worked with tenants uh, mm-hmm. in in down in the downtown east side as an advocate. Um, he suggested that civil forfeiture could have been used, um, and and then people also go back to the, sta- the standards of maintenance bylaw, which is a city thing mm-hmm. um, that the city never really used um, with these buildings as well as something that could have been used. So there were these. There are tools that I think could be put in place, but this just either haven't been used or aren't in place. And even those tools,
0: it still doesn't sound like anything criminal, like in terms of criminal law, right? Like
1: that. That's- well, civil forfeiture is getting towards that point, okay. but I'm that's I'm just going to leave it there for now, though, because sure. I have a story planned, <laughs> okay. and so you'll have to wait for that.
0: Okay, fair <laughs> enough. It, it just, and I bring that up. Just because the conditions that they left those buildings in and and people can go online and look at photos and videos and they're just abhorrent. And again, we're, we're talking about knowingly exposing people to not just pests, but things like black mold. It just seems like to me. That should be a crime. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, when, when the Grenfell apartment building fire happened in in London, mm-hmm. and I, I, when I was reading about that and hearing about it, I just I think at the same I think that was happening at the same time as I was reporting on this stuff with the region and Balmoral. And I just thought to myself, like, these buildings could have been our Grenfell. If there had been a fire at one of these buildings, um, people were routinely worried about fire exits being blocked, about the fire escape being loose and being unsafe to use on the roof. And Mm -hmm. and there were fires all the time in the region. Um, And people would kind of, people would try to use the fire escape and not be able to. So, it was, I mean, we're just lucky that nothing happened. What is the current
0: plan for these buildings then has the city outlined what they're going to do with these properties and and the land, I guess.
1: Yeah. The plan is to redevelop them into social housing. That's for that 375 shelter rate, like for the people who are Mm -hmm. making the least amount of money. Um, and I think, you know, the community probably wouldn't allow anything else at this point. Those buildings have become so symbolic of, um, just like neglect and the way that the community or the way the neighborhood is treated. Um, and the violence that has gone on in those buildings. So that's pretty firm that that's the plan. It's gonna be 100% social housing at the welfare rate, but it's going to be a while before that's done, because obviously these are going to be huge developments to kind of do. And, and a huge expenditure. It'll be, yeah, it'll be pretty big expenditure.
0: Is it the city that's only going to foot the bill for this so far? They'll probably
1: try to get funds from the federal government and province. Yeah, um, The federal government and the province are both, um, you know, pretty into housing at the moment. So there's money and I, I would imagine they would go and try to get matching funds.
0: When we talk about public housing as a whole, and, and certainly there has been a... Uh, A lack of public housing development, I I believe, from the 90s onwards. Is this what it's actually going to take to bring back public housing, overpaying for old buildings and then reconstructing them?
1: Well, there's been other... I mean, this isn't the only public... Uh, this isn't the only social housing that's being sure. built right now. There's actually like a resurgence in interest in building social housing on both the provincial and the federal level.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there's been complaints about the federal plan and like whether it's enough and all of that stuff. Um, so that's valid, but they do the federal government now does have a national housing strategy, which they didn't before. Which the,
0: we get a small percentage we of. Get a,
1: I know, there's, there's been <laughs> questions about how much BC gets and all of that stuff, but um, both the province and the federal government are focused on housing in a way that they weren't before. So that's positive. The City recently voted on this really ambitious plan to buy up the remaining privately owned SRO buildings to get them into public hands so that they can be, you know, run by nonprofit operators, Mm -hmm. I suppose, I I guess. And so it's not just this isn't like the one off. This is probably part of all of that activity happening. Um, And yeah, I mean, this. What what The exciting thing about the Balmoral site is that it's a really high-density site, so they can build quite a large building there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess just as someone who lives in the Metro Vancouver area, someone who is in the city of Vancouver a lot, that's exciting. And it's good to know that more public housing will be developed and appropriate housing with good conditions presumably will be developed. But then the other side of me goes... How many of these slumlords are just going to make a pretty penny from doing a shitty job of maintaining these buildings?
1: But that's our system in British Columbia and property ownership, you know, as a property owner. Like, you're you're going on and on about, you know, how these buildings were um, assessed at a dollar and all of this stuff, but at the end of the day property owners still have like lots of rights and there are reasons for that and whether you know we can talk about that but um yeah the the city like if you want to buy these properties that these owners own and mm-hmm. you know they're going to have to buy them so it it, it i mean it it does kind of show the cracks in our system mm-hmm. that these th- this can go on for so long and that it can be such a, a horrible abuse of property ownership um so yeah i would suggest that i would like to see more attention paid on why this happened and what could be done to prevent it in the future
0: and is that effectively why the sohotas got away with such egregious slumlording for so long well
1: the other factor you have to remember is that as bad as these buildings sometimes can get they are often the only they're like the housing of last resort for people Mm -hmm. who would otherwise be homeless so And then people, and also there's unofficial tenants who come in as guests and are staying there as well, Mm. who would be homeless um, and really don't have many rights. They can just be asked to leave at any time. So um, that was, I think, that was always the push and pull with the city was that they were afraid of making a whole bunch of people homeless, right, if they came down really hard on the Sahotas. And so that was always kind of like the, do we use the carrot or would you use the stick? And they were trying to for a while in like 2016. They were really trying to use the carrot with the Sohodes and really Mm -hmm. trying to, like, meet with them frequently and, like, try to get them to work with them to, like, make their buildings better. But in the end, it just didn't work.
0: You don't have to name names, but I presume that they're not the only ones.
1: Yeah, I'm... I'm not really comfortable naming names in this situation. I just said be- you don't have yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's obviously a number of them. Um, I just don't want to raise allegations without kind of giving, you know, giving them a chance to comment and all of that stuff. But yeah, there's a number of them. And they're not, not all SRO operators or owners are bad people. Some of them actually run their buildings well. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush. Um, My point is this isn't. Isolated to the Soho.
0: No, no, it's which definitely not. No, it's definitely not. Similar issues. Yes. Yeah. I want to zoom out a little bit, and I want to talk about just the homeless population in Vancouver, because one issue that kept coming up, especially in the last year, was, and even before that, was this issue of tent cities. We see them in different areas, especially when we drive in the the east side. We see, you know, a few different ones. Can you give me a the general scope of Vancouver's tent cities, how many are we talking about? Ballpark, how many people are living in different tent cities?
1: Yeah, I only know of one right now that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's sort of a formal tent city. You might have some other like smaller encampments here and there, like in vacant lots or kind of tucked out of the way. Okay. But the, the one that's operating right now is in Strathcona Park. Um, and there was between 200 and 400 people there. We don't like the last, the last estimate I saw was 200 people in Mm -hmm. the summer. I think maybe it was larger. Um,
0: I guess that's an important distinction too. There's a difference between a tent city, quote unquote, and just. An encampment.
1: Yeah, right? when we're talking about the one that's in Strathcona Park right now, it's it is. They went there under some organizers, like who decided to go there, and mm. then there there are these a couple of organizers, main organizers who are supporting them, and a bunch of volunteers who have things set up like a food tent and various things, and like a c- ceremonial fire that's always mm. tended. So, um, yeah. So when we're talking about a tent city, there's it's it's it is quite an organized uh, thing. Uh, the one in Strathcona Park.
0: Sure. As opposed to just like an encampment with a few people yeah. who have tents up.
1: Yeah. Okay. Which is, which is also common throughout the city.
0: So Strathcona keeps coming up in the news. <laughs> yeah. You you said, you know, there's about 200, maybe 400 people. And I think what I found fascinating is, is you just sort of alluded to it's, it is sort of organized. Like there's a food tent, there is a warming tent, there's a shower site.
1: There There's not yet that the oh, warming yet. tent and the shower sites are, upcoming from bc housing but they're not in oh, place okay yet. so
0: these yeah. are actually provided by bc housing to those areas, to that tent city
1: they are after a lot of asking for them and lobbying they're finally being and and as the first step in get in decamping the camp
0: so so jen i know we've chatted in the past i'm very dumb so you have to explain
2: this well to let's go back and let's go back and just, back and just <laughs> yeah. talk about
1: what happened like so yeah. so there was for a long time so Keep in mind that there's been a tent city, in Va- an organized tent city in Vancouver since 2016. Mm-hmm. And it, is, it hasn't been the same tent city. I don't want to make it sound like that. But there has been a tent city in various places like vacant lots since 2016. It's And they've moved around. So then uh, there was a tent city in Oppenheimer Park for two years that right. got finally got shut down uh, in May of 2020 um, because of COVID. They mm-hmm. said it wasn't safe. And so they made a big effort, BC Housing like leased and bought a whole bunch of hotel rooms and made a really big effort to relocate people from that camp to those hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. But some people still didn't want to go to that housing and they ended up at this parking lot beside Crab Park that was owned by the Vancouver Port Authority. So the right. Vancouver Port had a pretty easy time of going to court and getting an injunction to get them boot them out. And then in, in June, they moved to Strathcona Park because they had been booted out of Crab Park. Okay. Parking lot.
0: And I pre- and I appreciate that that timeline that that makes a little more sense. I guess where I'm confused is so they're adding facilities to Strathcona's tent city, but at the same time there is a plan to decamp them.
1: Yeah, so it's sort of a slow motion plan as far as I can figure out. And I don't even really know where they are in terms of getting they wanna so what they wanna do is have alternative housing in place Mm -hmm. that they can offer to people. This is how they always do it. It's like the game plan that they always have. They kind of get a bunch of housing in place that they then go and offer to people. You know, obviously people don't have to go to those places. So Mm -hmm. that's always kind of a struggle and then they try to kind of reduce the amount of people there or in the case of oppenheimer park they actually fenced off the entire park okay and didn't let people back in at all or anyone else use the park
0: and what's the situation with strathcona park
1: so the city earmarked 30 million dollars to address homelessness because homelessness rose during the pandemic because Mm -hmm. people weren't allowed to be guests and sro rooms and all these things so we have more homeless people Um, and so there's a couple of sites that have been mentioned, but I don't really know what the status is. So one is the 2400 Motel, the other is the Jericho Beach Hostel. It's mm-hmm. just um, properties that the city already owns that they could make available right away. But I don't know what the status is with that. And so we know that they want to get this plan in place, and as part of the, as part of that plan, they're putting in some more amenities like a warming tent and a shower site um you know keep in mind that people have been asking for these for six months Mm -hmm. and they're only now just getting them and it's sort of like as part of they seem to wait until they kind of had this sort of plan in place to start decamping the tent the the site but it's, it's very I mean it's very confusing it's very slow moving it's obviously a frustration to both the people who are living in Strathcona Park and the people who live around it. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. And I want to be clear. I mean, my confusion was, I'm all for giving people services like a warming tent and a shower site. I guess my confusion was just like, oh, we're adding these facilities, but we're also decamping them at the same time. It
1: is confusing and it is, and it's, yeah. And it, it is sort of like, you know, there's, there's sort of this different rhetoric around like are we at the point where we just need like a permanent tent city or some sort of like managed tent city with with like more amenities but a kind of like horror of going in that direction because we don't want to have a permanent tent city in our city which is understandable and doesn't seem sustainable but then like do we just not give services to an existing tent city and um just let people kind of be in the cold and what do we do so it's it's just this hard thing to figure out
0: and I'm going to allow you to editorialize as much as you want here now, but you often hear it in the media, the city needs to just shut this down. And I always just as a knee jerk reaction, again, I'm very dumb, but as a knee jerk reaction, I go, okay, great. But then where do those people go? Yeah. <laughs> like no one asks that follow up question, which I always find bizarre. W- but what do you say to people who go, these are public parks, mm-hmm. and they're being overrun, and this is not fair. This needs to be shut down immediately. And we have no leadership that's Doing that what's what's your response to someone who who comes with that kind of anger or backlash
1: well i'm actually pretty sympathetic to people who say that people shouldn't we shouldn't have huge tent cities and parks because mm-hmm. right now especially with COVID 19 it showed how important our outdoor spaces are and that's true for people who live in strathcona that's true for people who live in the downtown east side you know they should be able to use oppenheimer park it's currently completely closed off um it's probably not ideal to have tent cities in public parks uh there's they're just not set up for it um but yeah you do you do have this dynamic of when they when people are pushed off of sites so like 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 the parking lot near crab park where they tried to go and they were they were got in the port got an injection really quickly well if you like close it down right away then people are going to move to another site so Mm -hmm. if you close (laughs) yeah if you close drathcona park down right away and there's been all these um with public parks it's more complicated too because there's been all of these court decisions over the years that you can't you can't um not allow people to camp in parks if there's no other alternative place for them to go
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so it's legally they're kind of would be have a hard time doing it as well um so it's just very complicated and um and i do you know the the like length of time it's taken to deal with strathcona park and figure out a plan too i have to say i question that because it has taken kind of months and months and there's been these you know when is there a
0: jurisdictional issue where there is yes there is because
1: there's disagreement between park board and the city council there's been there's been kind of like tussling over that jurisdiction since oppenheimer park um Mm -hmm. where like a couple of years ago, the mayor was trying to, wanted the park board to apply for an injunction to clear Oppenheimer Park, and the park board refused to do that. So that set up a kind of a conflict. Um, it's probably would be the same dynamic in Strathcona Park, my guess is, just because the park board is, still has the same kind of political makeup. So it's kind of a mess, I guess. This is how I describe it at this point.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And we'll get into media narratives a little later, but one of the narratives that comes up is that these tent cities are dangerous. Setting aside COVID, you know, where yeah. obviously a pandemic can spread, I just want to talk about this idea like obviously if you're a resident in the area, I think it's also fair to say, you know, this is not a sustainable situation as you said yourself, and you will have concerns, but what are the concerns around crime and safety in the tent city and around the tent city
1: yeah i mean there have been a lot of really disturbing incidents that have happened in tent cities um advocates who support tent cities always point out that the same kind of violence happens in like say an sro and Mm -hmm. that people just don't see it as much so i guess we should say that um but i still think it's quite disturbing and we should probably have this you know bring these incidents to light so for instance in oppenheimer park there was an incident where a woman was held in a tent for many hours and was assaulted repeatedly hmm. um at Op- at strathcona park there's been a number of incidents where um a couple of young men have who lived there were really really badly assaulted and one man lost his leg because of the assault there was hmm. another man who was stabbed and i understand he's um has, has some disabilities from that as well. Um, like, you know, just kind of mayhem that's happened recently. Apparently, the most recent incident was a man drove his car through, the, through Strathcona hmm. Park, the tent city, and ran over a tent and injured a couple of men who were sleeping in that tent. So I think, you know, whether or not, and then the residents around who live in Strathcona um, who are housed have been, like concern the entire time because they've they say they've seen an increase in crime um and break-ins and that kind of thing so mm-hmm. i it's not an ideal situation it's 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 dangerous for the people who are living in the tent city it's dangerous it's you know the residents also have this concern um so it's yeah i think it's i think it's valid to say that it is dangerous um whether it's valid to say we need to shut it down right away or you know like if what like, I just question, like, what is the solution? We have to look at the solutions being proposed, and just questioning, like, is this really going to make things safer for people? Like, what is the you know the end solution? Is housing for everybody probably? Yeah. But that's difficult.
0: So what I'm gathering is, and, and please add more or correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. What I'm gathering here is that you know the solution that they that they've planned is the correct solution because it is about decamping people and finding people more stable housing options but intrinsically there's that can't happen overnight it it does take time but then also there is a lot of delay in doing it i don't know
1: i mean why like oppenheimer park they moved really quickly to to like secure hotels and they even bought a hotel on granville street um so, so, I'm, is there so I'm, not then, clear. I'm not clear on why it's taking so long. But the actually. plan
0: you, but the plan you agree is correct. Or, or sure. I mean, what they've sense. said, yeah. what they've
1: said they want to do, that seems like they're trying hard. I mean, have, the and other... And they say
0: they the city. <laughs> the city. The
1: city. Yeah. yeah. The other wrinkle to show in here, to throw in here is that a lot of the people that I speak to who have lived in the tent, who live in the tent city now, like quite a few of them have had supportive housing or have had housing and it just, and they've either been evicted or it just hasn't worked out for them. So. Just to add in a whole other wrinkle here is mm. that when we talk about getting people housing, that's also not that simple because I think we need to really think about why the housing isn't working out for them mm. and think about that as well.
0: So there's that wrinkle. There's,
1: there's a wrinkle. lot of wrinkles. It sounds
0: like you're saying it's it's just taking too slow. They could, it could be faster, the process.
1: So... I mean, I know it's complicated to find buildings, and <laughs> I don't want to. You know, if I had that job at the city, I know it would be really probably hard. And mm-hmm. it just, but it does seem to. You know, they have sort of made these movements, like earmarking thirty million dollars to deal with the problem, and then and that was in October, and now months later, we're kind of like, well, the situation is the same. So what's going on here?
0: So I'm going to ask you two questions. These are not what I think we should do, but there's certainly things that I've heard in the public sphere. The first is, why not force these people into supportive housing? What's what's the argument? Like, because you, I mean, we we agree that because they legal, don't have to legally go there. you
1: can't do okay. that. <laughs> yeah. i mean but there's a lot
0: of talking heads that say you should do it
1: we are skating close to this idea though that has kind of come to the fore this year uh, where people are openly just saying like let's institutionalize people right so i mean i think we if we're really going to talk about that we need to really talk about what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about that what you know what canada's history of institutionalizing people who have mental health uh have mental illness or have cognitive disabilities how has that gone i would suggest it didn't go that well um, and there was a reason that's people have been deinstitutionalized um, so yeah if we're skating towards that territory then yeah, let's just talk about it let's have a conversation about that and the history
0: there's a lot more that i want to get to but because and that's what i was getting at because this solution has kind of been thrown out there and we've seen political parties basically throw out this solution whether directly or implied they've sort of said oh they need to be put into care you know they'll put it that way why doesn't that work
1: well i think what you're talking about is the bc liberals campaigning on saying that people need to be have much much more support if they're being if there's like they they were sort they were campaigning and saying if we're elected um we're gonna really focus on housing and and really increasing the supports and wraparound supports mm-hmm. and um when uh when housing up op- um advocate said to me like you have to be really careful when you're using that language that you're not if you're like putting in so many rules and not make making people feel um anxious and uneasy in their own home then that's also not ideal for keeping people housed but some people do need more support so there's that um so, so the bc liberals were saying that the problem is that then they were also going and saying really tying it to the law and order kind of thing and talking really linking homelessness to crime mm-hmm. and so they were kind of packaging that all together and so then it was it was kind of you know housing advocates were just saying like this is really a step backwards in this this kind of discourse
0: and again these are not my opinions I'm just playing devil's advocate because I want to get the simple explanation of why these don't work on that law and order subject and we just talked about that as well and again not my <laughs> suggestion why can't you just send in police and guard off the area and have them in the camps patrolling what is the issue with that?
1: Well, I think police do go to the city to the Tent City quite a bit. Um, but they're the relationship between the people in the tent city and the police is pretty fraught. Mm -hmm. Um I'd say the entire like most of the people I almost all the people I talk to who live in the downtown east side don't have a really fraught relationship with um the Vancouver police department and feel like they're overpoliced and just have a lot of problems and ex- really bad experiences so mm-hmm. um yeah whether the, i mean whether the police can come in and do their job properly and i i don't know it's it's i sort of see a lot of just a lot of you know um angst about that right now
0: i guess the the, the reason i ask about that specifically is because you hear on Talk radio programs and the news that where are the police or, you know, they're not coming or I called them and they don't show up Mm. in these areas where people who are housed have these concerns about Mm -hmm. safety and crime, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think this year there was there has been a lot of anxiety about that uh, because all of a sudden, you know, when the pandemic hit and all of these services were shut down, a lot of drop in centers were shut down um, in a lot of the SRO buildings. um, People put in operators put in guest restriction policies to try Mm -hmm. to limit the spread of covid. And all of those had the effect of pushing people onto the street more often, right. including into outright homelessness. And so all of a sudden you had people on the street much more visibly in Yaletown, you know, you saw this, all this angst in Town mm-hmm. with people, um, using drugs in public. And you saw these kind of, um, safety groups pop up and start photographing people using drugs outside and putting them on social media and kind of talking about crime and all of this stuff. Um... What we've seen is that when you look at the actual statistics is that crime in Vancouver um, didn't go up this year, but it it did go up in some pockets, in Mm. some very, very specific pockets. So, the police released more information after that had kind of been pointed out that the crime had not gone up. They kind of released more and more statistics and showed that in some specific areas, so like right around Strathcona Park, for instance, they showed that crime did go up. So,
0: I want to discuss 2020, and I know that's a little silly because 2021 is a carryover of a lot of these issues, but we know that, and, and you just talked about this, we know that when economic downturns, natural disasters, pandemics happen, they always affect low-income folks, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable people the most. When we look back at 2020, there, there were clearly two public health crises, The opioids poisoning crisis, which had continued from years previous, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. A very broad question but i want to keep it open-ended because i sort of want you to explain to me what you've seen how have these two health crises shaped the downtown east side in the last year or so uh and certainly we can go back a little bit more if we're talking about the opioids crisis what what does it look like because of these crises
1: yeah i mean that's been one of the most uh like the saddest and most concerning things about how the pandemic has played out in the downtown east side um Opioid uh, deaths or deaths, sorry, deaths from overdoses have just skyrocketed. They're like at historic highs. And this started happening, you know, the sad thing is that in 2019, um, the opioid overdose crisis really started to tick up in 2016. Mm -hmm. And it was really bad. And there was a whole bunch of things put in place like overdose prevention sites. And by 2019, the deaths had actually started to go down and they were making headway with that. And probably a lot of those harm reduction things were partly to um were partly uh, partly like fed into that
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and then sadly in 2020 it seemed like all that progress was just erased and uh because drugs became more toxic and with that kind of initial restriction period where there was a lot of things not open people were doing drugs um alone more often
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so the death rate just um went up really uh really to historic highs um luckily covid transmission was pretty low in the downtown east side initially it did start to tick up though in the fall kind of along with the rest of the province Mm -hmm. so there's been a lot of concern about covid like covid definitely has been present in the downtown east side and then people who get it in the downtown east side because they often have pre-existing health conditions they're more Um, likely to end up in hospital and a a very and a small number of people have have died from it but many more people have died from overdoses so uh so that combination has just been really really brutal and it's left people you know with emotional trauma because they've just know they just know so many people who have died and if you can just imagine you know how you feel when you hear like even someone that you just was an acquaintance has passed away and you mm-hmm. feel that grief? Just imagine just hearing, like maybe every month or possibly every every week or a couple of weeks that
2: mm.
1: someone that you knew um has died, or even you know people have this experience over and over again where they don't see someone for a while. and they assume the worst. They just are like, "I don't know, I guess that guy must have died." And then they'll see them again and be just be like, Oh, I'm so like it's just that that emotional roller coaster all the time. Yeah, yeah.
0: How did COVID affect services provided in the downtown east side? Because we've heard stories certainly when it comes to elderly folks, people in the disability community, where because of COVID, because of having you know people go to different homes, services were cut quite dramatically were services cut in the downtown east side for these people?
1: Yeah, initially initially it was a lot of things were cut back. Um, mm-hmm. And that included like drop-in centers. And, you know, some of these drop-in centers um, cater to really marginalized populations. So like, like sex workers, and that's maybe the only place they feel comfortable. And mm. um, then your only inside space where you feel comfortable is suddenly not open. And, you know, how would that affect you? Um, so that did happen initially, like the Carnegie... Carnegie Community Center was closed. Um, They were still like doing things like passing meals through to people outside. Um, You know, a bunch of different drop-in centers and... And then also just like the guest restrictions in the buildings that came in all of a sudden, you know, that would, that also affected people. So they all of a sudden weren't really able to get in to visit their relatives who might be in another building. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, that relative died of an overdose and then they're they're left thinking, well, what if I had been able to go in? So
2: mm.
1: there was, all of that was happening. I would say in the earlier part of the pandemic in the spring, um, things have mostly opened up or they found workarounds. So a lot of outdoor spaces have opened, um, but things are still not back to normal so it's still affecting people and there's still like a lot of need for um bigger outdoor spaces for people to gather that are warm and dry and you know if you think of a day like we've had recently with just like freezing cold pouring rain and thinking about people who don't really have adequate an adequate space to go like that's just gonna affect people's health and mental well-being so much
0: and again this is an area where we can just go on for hours probably but Talking to you now, I'm just getting the feeling that things are stagnant or getting worse in the downtown east side. Like, it sounds like there are some plans there and and, and they're pointed in the right direction, sort of. But you're not giving me a ton of hope in terms of, you know, oh, you know, this is going to be a long-term project, but we're going to make people's lives better in, in five to ten years. I'm just not hearing any of that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing we have to think about is that uh, the community is still, I mean, from what I can see, the community is still strong. Mm-hmm. They're really interested in advocating for themselves. That's what I found working this beat is that there is a lot of interest in them bringing up issues that are happening to them that maybe other people media isn't covering there is a lot of interest in kind of talking about things and for them to push for change Mm -hmm. and so that i mean that gives me a ton of hope um and there, you know, there are things that are happening that are hopeful. Uh, there's um, there are like new drop-in services coming online. So, for instance, Wish, which runs a drop-in center um, right in this neighborhood in Gastown uh, for sex workers, they're going to be opening up another center on Kingsway, which is also where um, a lot of uh, sex workers work. And there's nothing up there now, so they're, mm-hmm. they've gotten funding to open up another drop-in center. So that's good news. Um, but it is, I mean, it has been it has been kind of stunning of just like how big of a whole the pandemic ripped in that kind of social fabric. Yeah. And that it is continuing and it sort of it does sort of continue to feel a reverberations. And when you think that we're kind of well, the other good news is that the downtown east side has been prioritized to get vaccinations, so that's good news. Mm-hmm. Um but when you think that we still have sort of months more to go before everyone is vaccinated and this pandemic is over, quote over. Yeah. Whether or not that's going to happen. Um it do, it, do, it can get a little overwhelming at times.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about the news coverage around the downtown east side, and not just your news coverage, but the general landscape of, of news coverage. You and I have privately discussed the role of rhetoric and framing, and I'm certainly one of those people that rolls their eyes when I see news coverage that focuses on the inconveniences of ambulance noises or the viability of luxury real estate in the area what is the media's responsibility to neutralize language or to create a certain framework of their coverage? Because, uh, you know, some people might say, well, residents upset by ambulance noise or property developers not being able to rent out their purpose-built rentals, that's just reporting the news.
1: Yeah, I and I think it's, uh, I've, I've been kind of going back and forth in my head about this because there have been quite a few articles in various publications um, talking to people who live in Gastown or kind of like right next door to the downtown east side in either market rental or condos. um, And talking to them about how the neighborhood has changed and people complaining about crime or complaining that there's so many homeless people in front of their building that they can't get inside.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, sometimes people are not going often. (laughs) I found that people are not going and talking to, like, the homeless people who were in front of, the, of, of a building, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's just not, not included in the story. So, I think it's understandable to do a story on those complaints. Um, so, what I'm sort of focused on, though, is when I look at those stories, you know, people who are housed and who are middle class have a pretty easy access to the media Mm -hmm. and they have a pretty easy time of um talking to the media they don't really feel that threatened by the media the media is maybe seen as kind of on their side so for personally what i'm focused on though is sort of trying to reach those people who maybe don't have as you know either have had maybe bad experiences with the media in the past or haven't really advocated for themselves in the media in the past and trying to sort of make a space where they can feel they can do that um so my experience I like I've covered the downtown side for years, but I I would tend to kind of just talk to the advocates and I would because they're easy to talk to, they're always will always answer the phone. But this doing this beat has kind of given me a chance to kind of get a little deeper into the community and talk to people who maybe are, for instance, that tenant who's in an SRO and is maybe having some sort of problem with their landlord. So just to talk to them about what's going on. So that that's personally what I'm focused on mm-hmm. is and then I, I see other media doing it and I'm um it's It's fine. Like, I just don't, um, I just think for my, for what I'm doing, I'm just kind of focused on something a little bit different.
0: And, and I understand your diplomatic answer. I'm just curious when you have those stories about a homeless population around a purpose-built rental and blocking the entrance, does media, does journalism have a responsibility to also explain the circumstances of why those people are there because oftentimes that's (laughs) what's left out of the story right (laughs) or the ambulance mm -hmm. is blaring through the middle Mm -hmm. of the night is there an inherent responsibility to explain why that's happening as often as it does
1: yeah i mean i think that journalism you should we always say this thing like all sides like you're that's what you're taught in journalism school and um you should always try to talk to every person who's in your story so if you're talking about like a crowd of homeless people there's really no reason that you can't just go down and talk to the crowd of homeless people especially in that particular area it's right beside the street market there's always people
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um outside there so yeah i was disappointed to see that not being included in that particular story about that um, rental building the other thing that wasn't included in that particular story we're talking about this rental building called the burns no sorry not the burns block Uh, It's it's it it was an SRO at one point and it was illegally evicted in 2006 Um, and then it was the building was sold to to a developer who did this renovation and created these like trendy micro suites and they go for really I think they're like seventeen hundred dollars (laughs) a month they're trying to get for them and they're still like really tiny but they have all these safe space safe sorry, space-saving techniques throughout the, the units. And that's the building we're talking about where homeless people were crowding in front and not letting people in, which is obviously a problem and mm-hmm. that shouldn't be happening. Um, so all of that context was not in that article, that particular article, and whether or not maybe the journalists were just rushed that day or just didn't have time or under some sort of other pressures to publish, I don't know. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more context and at the very least just going, at the very least talking to an advocate Who could, you know, at the very least, because there's a bunch, there's like Wendy Peterson, and there's who advocates for people who live in SROs. Mm -hmm. There's Karen Ward, who's a downtown Eastside resident, who's a community activist, who's always willing to opine Mm -hmm. and will often answer reporters' calls. So, at the very least, those people could have been involved in that story.
0: And I'm not trying to demonized media or journalists or anyone specifically I'm just asking a question is this a widespread problem where when covering the downtown east side a lot of this context is not included in these in this news coverage
1: I've been surprised at some of the coverage I've seen this year around the downtown east side because for a long time um, because the downtown downtown east side is has, at some points been really really closely covered for instance um, around the uh, picked in mm-hmm. William Picked in trial which is um, where he targeted women living in the downtown east side and you know Canada's first injection site like sometimes really really big news stories happen and there's been a lot of discussion about how not to report you know how the damaging thing does, that media has done which is like photographing people without their consent or just kind of um, filming them as if they're like in a zoo as people say mm-hmm. um, and that that's bad and we don't want to do that um, so I was there's been a lot of discussion over the years and, and then I felt like a lot of the coverage we we're seeing this year across like many different media, pl- um, media outlets was a little disappointing just because it didn't have that extra context. Um, so yeah I'm not really sure why that was happening but one other thing I can say is that newsrooms are totally hollowed out these days and everyone is under pressure and sure. everyone's rushed and that that's also a pretty bad situation. So
0: one thing we did start to see pop up, and you've alluded to this already, is these community groups. There's one in particular that that has made the media around Safer Vancouver, but there's other ones as well, and there's a lot of online groups. And they're quite angry. They're doing a lot of the things that you mentioned, taking photos of people without their consent and posting them, and it's it's, it's gross to me. <laughs> what are they proposing? What do they want?
1: Yeah, okay, so... I I thought about this a lot. And I, so they were, this group kind of formed after the people. Safer Vancouver? Safer Vancouver. Uh, seemed to form or their twitter account became active after the people from oppenheimer park who had been living in the tent city there Mm -hmm. were moved to this hotel the howard johnson hotel um, on granville street Mm -hmm. and so and that's not in the downtown east side that's in like downtown kind of adjacent to yale town and there was initially there was a lot of concern about that and people were like we weren't consulted because they weren't consulted they were it was an emergency and they Mm -hmm. just moved people (laughs) um into this hotel and so there was a lot of concerns about like Open drug use that people were seeing, and needles and parks, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that seemed to just really snowball through the summer and there was a yeah the Twitter account was very active and then it kind of changed and all of a sudden there was this spokesperson and who was sending out press releases and that's where I got interested because all of a sudden this group changed from being concerned about conditions in Town to kind of training their focus on the downtown east side Mm
2: -hmm. and so
1: that was interesting to me because I was like oh I thought the concern was about Town, but all of a sudden they were talking about harm reduction as a total failure as a policy experiment Um, we need an audit of downtown east side like the all the agencies that do work there um kind of suggesting that money isn't being well spent because there's still these social problems and so that's when i kind of got involved and started talking to them so i talked to their their spokesperson whose name is dallas brody and she just said some things that i i feel i just feel like they're quite extreme and that most people probably wouldn't agree with so she was talking about taking people who have like mental health problems or, or, or drug addiction problems and institutionalizing them. So she suggested that and she sort of emphasized like far away from cities. Um, I li- then listened to like a podcast that she had done, a podcast interview where she kind of went further and was talking about putting people on a Navy boat in the, in the Fraser River. So just this idea that you should isolate these people because they have problems away from other people.
0: And that's what I was getting to earlier. Like it's There were mainstream people amplifying Mm -hmm. that group Mm -hmm. and what that group represented
1: it's normal in vancouver politics city politics it's really normal for community groups to form when say like new housing for like homeless people especially is being proposed in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. for community groups to say we're worried about this we we want more information and to raise fears about needles and crime and that's Mm -hmm. that's really common and we've seen that before but what was new was this more extreme rhetoric, which is what I would call it, just more extreme rhetoric around, you know, let's take people and put like isolate them over here away from us because we just don't want them. Uh, so that to me, that was what I was seeing was di- quite, quite different.
0: I floated this idea with Andrea Wu. Obviously she couldn't responsibly confirm nor deny and i'm sure i'll get the same thing from you but i have to ask when i look at this group and then you look at some of the affiliated people and some of the people that are been amplifying this group is this just a terrible toxic way to promote gentrification of the downtown east side
1: um well I don't know if people are doing it with that kind of intent that you're suggesting, but I do think that there is an element there of that, and I'll kind of go through why I think that. So there is this other, there's this podcast host um, who his name is James Faulkner, and he runs this this podcast that Dallas Brody, the mm-hmm. spokesperson or former spokesperson for Safer Vancouver, after I reported on this, Safer Vancouver disavowed her. And oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. so that's sort of changed, and they say they're different. Um, so so this podcast host James Faulkner has really been talking about how there's sort of two groups of people there are like taxpayers who spend a lot of money to own real estate in vancouver and then there's this other group of people who are in his words are not really of value to society and that's really how he talks about it it's
0: so anyone who's not a property owner
1: no no not well he's (laughs) talking about people who use drugs people who you know people yeah basically he's talking about people who who are addicted to drugs. Okay. And he's really kind of like carving them off and being like they're like a different tribe and they can't really live beside us.
2: Hmm. And he's
1: said this many times, he said it to council. So wow. Um, yeah, so we we so when you see see that comment like, "Oh, I'm a tax paying citizen" and he's talked about how people have spent so much money to buy real estate here, and so they really shouldn't have to live beside these people. So I do think there is a sort of an idea from some of the members of this list. Some of the members of this group are just concerned about their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and don't probably have anything to do with this. But some of them, some of the more vocal people, are really tying property values to kind of problems with living beside those people. So I do think there's something to the idea of, you know, we're trying to make the city better, we're trying to, like, make it nice, and these people are getting in the way. So I, I do see... In some people, like definitely not all, but in some, some of the people who are being really vocal about this, there is that kind of push.
0: Wow. What set up alarm bells for me was when I started to see a developer amplify Safer Vancouver. Yeah, that's what i was like oh okay this is a real estate play great like
1: yeah and it was hard
0: not to be cynical about that
1: so that that was john stovell of reliance properties and he is the one who owns that uh rental building where the where the tenants were complaining that they couldn't get in the door because homeless people were always in front and blocking them Mm -hmm. and so he was really upset about that issue and i would i would say like with reason like that shouldn't be happening at your rental building and tenants should be able to get into their building um and yeah he was for a while he was kind of doing a lot of tweets with um photographs of that of the people the homeless people in front of the building and complaining about it and taking for vancouver he stopped doing that after i reported on them on their comments um so he sort of continues i mean i've i've been sort of Noticing that on social media, he has been continuing over the fall to kind of complain about post photos of homeless people and complain about um, lacks, you know, lacks like, problems not being dealt with properly and that kind of thing.
0: You've been framed as an activist journalist by some people, quote unquote.
1: By a few people <laughs> on Twitter. And I don't think it's even, I think they're trolls, so.
0: Okay. Well, fair enough. But the tiee has certainly... Amongst certain groups being framed as activism journalism or special interest journalism, what do you say to people who, who say to you or, or talk about the Tai and they say, well, you're a biased reporter. Uh, this is interest group based activism
1: yeah no one's ever said that to my face it's always (laughs) it's always on twitter and it's like i say like i just think there are people on twitter who try who don't like what you're saying it it's it's an accusation that gets leveled at you as a way to kind of try to shut you up or make you question oh am i a good journalist and um so yeah so it's been i mean it's been a little like it's gone a little farther with um there was a, a facebook group that was one of these community safety groups right. and at one point I guess they were mad at me and um, Garth Mullins this other this other journalist who is who does kind of slide more on the line of like activist slash journalist sure. um, and Karen Ward who's a community activist who's extremely vocal on Twitter about all sorts of things um, they were saying to to this group um, you know these, are, these people are kind of a problem for us and if you notice them behaving badly on Twitter like make sure to report them as so, sort of this element of like, oh, get them off Twitter, I guess. so it, that kind of became a thing, I guess, on Twitter. I mean, should we even be on Twitter? It's If we're off, maybe maybe our lives would be much more simple. I wouldn't exist without um, Twitter, so let's not I think go it's there. Pretty gla- I'm, like, so I'm extremely, extremely careful to talk to every single person in the story. Like mm-hmm. I am really, really, especially with a story like when I was reporting on Safer Vancouver, like it's, it's really key that you get everybody in the story and all of their points of view. Mm-hmm. And I've always tried to really, really hard to do really, really balanced journalism. And I think my record really speaks for itself. And if a few people on Twitter want to get mad at me and call me an activist, um, (laughs) they can go ahead, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. And and I appreciate that. I guess I'm just getting at that issue of, you know, some people look at the Taii in particular and we can zoom out and just look at the Taii. Obviously I like their work. Apparently most senior does. I wasn't aware that he was, he's usually, you know, a little bit to the right but but people look at it and go that's special interest group based journalism and and you know i had a commentary on ckw and i was calling out a lot of special interest groups and one of the things i heard was well why didn't you call out the tai and my response was well i think i think they actually do journalism
1: <laughs> yeah well so i don't think there's any question that the tai has always I mean, obviously the tai has always had a pro, like we call it progressive like sort of like i don't know like left leaning kind of Outlook. Um, and and it was set up as kind of a counterpoint, especially a counterpoint to the Vancouver Sun. But that was like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really evolved since then. And um and also a counterpoint, like at that time when the Thai was set up, was founded by David Beers, um, who's still involved and is um great. Um so at that point, you know, the BC liberals had just gotten into power and and the province was sort of sliding more to the right, and so it was sort of envisioned as this like a little bit of a voice for the left. And It's still that way, but I think it's. uh, I think it's. We've been doing more journalism. We've been publishing like a wider range. We've been hiring more journalists. So Mm -hmm. I think that, and it's. It's really. I mean, the the publication is almost like twenty years old at this point. Um, So I think what you're going to find when you go to the Thai is um, just like a really like really really in-depth articles that's kind of our Mm -hmm. thing we're almost we're kind of like an online magazine you're going to find a lot of opinion pieces and we really make an effort to find opinion pieces from a really diverse set of people who writers and um, commentators Um, so you're just going to find maybe a little bit of a different direction from what you might find say in the vancouver sun or other media but that's okay like it's it's a media ecosystem
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the refreshing thing about working there is that it's totally not a problem to cite other journalists work. And we always have recognized that we're a media ecosystem and Mm. that everybody's work builds into journalism in Vancouver and BC. Um, and we just really have an appetite to do deep dives into topics, and we publish a really wide range of people. It's really not its really not just left-wing people, really. <laughs> it's, And I think that we're being read more by people who are more, like, sort of on the center-right. Like, I, I go on CKNW frequently as mm-hmm. well, and um, so, yeah, I think we're really just trying to do journalism, we're just trying to do, we're trying to hold power to account, mm-hmm. and we're not, you know, we've never, I don't think we would ever have an ad, you know be let ourselves be influenced by advertisers for instance for our coverage mm-hmm. which i've personally experienced in other newspapers so <laughs> um so that's it's all been it's been extremely refreshing to go there and work i started there full-time in july and it's just been um really really experienced journalists working there and guiding us um who just have a really i just it's just been a really refreshing place to come cool. and work so Please read us. Give us a read.
0: <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> and you might have already answered this question now, but uh, Jed, I have to admit, unlike a lot of other interviews, this was actually quite a challenge for me because you're lovely. I hold your work in very high regard. I really enjoy reading your work. But the idea that I was going to sit down with you and like talk about the downtown east side, quote unquote, even for an hour is challenging because there's so many things to discuss. There's so many different angles to look at this Area and the people in the area with such historical complexity. And, you know, I know that people might listen to this and go, Oh, you didn't cover this or you didn't talk about that. And the truth is, I had to be very deliberate in terms of approaching specific topics and specific topics that you had covered because I wanted to provide an entry point for someone who's maybe not familiar with a lot of the stuff going on, but stuff that's happening, stuff that's very current. And so I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you unpacking some of these issues with me, giving me a lot more context of what's happening in our city, in our community. So aside from visiting the Tai, what is your call to action?
1: Well, my call to action is just to try to understand other people's point of view and try to look for the whole story. So maybe if you read something and you notice, you know, a fun game you can play is when you're reading news articles online, is you can just say, "Oh, what like what perspective is mentioned in here, but that isn't explored, or what what person is mentioned in the story, but they didn't go and talk to them, mm. and then may, just be aware that that happened, and that maybe there's other media out there that you could look at. I mean, all of all of my colleagues who do journalism in Vancouver, they're all doing a fabulous job mm-hmm. under some pretty tough circumstances, sometimes with job cuts and. Um, fewer resources and everyone's trying really hard so we don't always get the story right the first time or the complete the first time but just please like try to maybe get off social media or um, don't like don't let yourself be swayed by these certain narratives um, about things and really just seek out a wide range of of kind of have a have a varied media diet
0: Mm -hmm. I love that Jen, I want to thank you for your time. Even when you were at the Star of Vancouver and I was just starting this podcast, you were one of the first people that really paid me any attention. And I've talked about this on the program. You put in a word with, at the time, Housing Minister Selena Robinson. And I think that made a big difference. And that really set off a chain of events where I was getting more high-profile, quote-unquote, politicians on, on the show. You've always been kind to me. You've been supportive. And it's funny because when I look at the incredible work you do, I just like, I'm like, why is this smart person <laughs> even giving me the time of day? And, and it means a lot to me because privately, and I, and I want to make this public, but privately, I've come to you asking questions for you to explain things to me. And you've always done so with like an open heart and accessible clarity. You know, you always gave me that time of day and it's always meant a lot to me. And I just want people to know that. So Thank you so much. I'm calling it now. You're going to come back on the program maybe later this year. I want to delve some more into these issues because I think they're extremely important to our city. But for now, just want to thank you for for your time.
1: Well, thank you, Mo. I mean, I genuinely enjoy your show. And I I admire how you have just kind of gone and done your podcast without worrying, without waiting for someone to hire you to do journalism. (laughs) You've just gone out and done it. And, you know, we're going to have to do that more because... Um, all these legacy media outlets are under a lot of pressure. And if people want to do journalism, they're going to have to find a way to kind of do it on their own terms. And that's what you've done. So that's why I've been happy to support you and happy to gossip about politics (laughs) privately anytime.
0: (laughs) I will shy away from the journalism label, but I appreciate the sentiment nonetheless. So thank you so much. Thanks, Mo. People. That was a long time coming. She is seriously a gem in the city, one of my favorite reporters. She's the downtown Eastside reporter for the Taí. She is Jen St. Dennis. And I am Moamir, Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.